This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And it hasn't actually happened as of when we are recording, but by the time this episode comes out, we will have recently passed the birthday of a very important French artist, and we do not have an episode on her. This is what happens when we have to record, like, an extra three-week buffer of episodes ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Time travel. Time travel, which is fine. I kind of wish I had thought to do it sooner in the year so we could land this nearer her birthday, but we didn't. Uh, And a large part of her appeal as a portrait artist was her ability to paint incredibly flattering likenesses. She brought a lightness to her depictions that gives them great life, and she actually made a good living with her art, although she always had aspirations of working on sort of grand historical art. She was kept very, very busy by a steady list of commissions, starting when she was merely a teenager and lasting throughout her life. Her works, which captured the likenesses of many royals and nobles of her time, are seen literally throughout the world. So if you Google Marie Antoinette, you will undoubtedly see several portraits painted by the subject of today's podcast, Elisabeth Louise Vigée Lebrun. Holly is going to say that more beautifully than me consistently throughout this entire episode. No, I'm sure I'm clunking it up in my own magical way. Uh, so Elizabeth Louise Viget was born in Paris on April 16th, 1755. Her father, Louis Viget, was a successful artist who specialized in pastel portraits. Because of her father's work, the Viget family was afforded some access to intellectual circles and society that otherwise would have been a little closed off to them. As a consequence, even as a child, uh, Elizabeth received lessons and encouragement in her artistic pursuits by some of the most popular artists of the day. Yeah, she really was clearly going to be an artist no matter what. (laughs) She went to boarding school from the ages of 6 to 11. And as I said, an artist from the beginning, she spent most of her time there drawing on just about every scrap of paper she came across. She basically couldn't stop making art. She told one story in her memoirs where she was um, sent outside and she would draw in the the sand and the dirt portraits and, and little sketches 
while she was just standing there in the yard because she would rather be painting or drawing than doing anything else. Uh, because she was also a little bit of a frail child, her parents would often take her out of school for a few days at a time so she could go home and uh, kind of recover. And she apparently loved this because she absolutely adored her family. She loved spending time with them, particularly her father. And she also adored her younger brother, Etienne, who was born three years after her. Once she was permanently removed from boarding school, she was quite happy, but her bliss was pretty short-lived. Just a year later, her father became seriously ill and he never recovered. He died when Elizabeth was just 12, and his last words to Elizabeth and Etienne were, Be happy, my children. In the way her memoir is written, those might have been his last words, period, but it's not entirely clear, uh, which is so sad and poignant and heartbreaking. And the death of her father was, uh, as you can imagine, really intense. One, she was very young. Two, he had kind of been the center of her universe. Uh, and it really halted her interest in art for a little while. She describes herself as being unable to pick up her, her, uh, pastels for a while. But eventually, the French painter Gabriel Francois Doyen, who had been a, f- a good friend of Louis Viget, urged Elizabeth to return to her passion of drawing and painting as a way of coping with her grief. And this is really when she started working in earnest on portraiture. She also started visiting galleries and museum exhibits with her mother, and she became more fully immersed in studying the masters of painting. She copied their styles in various portraits and studies. While Louis had left no financial cushion for the family when he died, she was able to make a little money with her portrait work. But the money that was coming in really wasn't enough to support Elizabeth, her mother, and her brother. And so her mother remarried to a jeweler. But the young woman, Elizabeth, continued to take portrait clients. And by the age of 15, she had set up a studio and began painting portraits basically as her profession. And she quickly grew a considerable clientele. But the money that she was making at this point went right to her stepfather, a man who she pretty frankly detested. Her clientele continued to grow, a fact that Elizabeth uh, attributed not only to her skill as a painter, but also her own good looks. We have self-portraits of her as the artwork on our website for these episodes. And I feel like I, I can see her kind of saying in my mind, yes, I am quite pretty, not in an arrogant way. <laughs> She's as a matter of fact, she's pretty frank about it in her memoirs. And she does sort of paint it as like, I'm not trying to brag, but people would stare at me in public. Like, I I was pretty because my mother was pretty. Yes. So she would later write, quote, since I have acknowledged that I was stared at in the streets, the same is true of the theaters and other public places, and that I was the object of many attentions, it may be, it may readily be guessed that some admirers of my face gave me commissions to paint theirs. They hoped to get into my good graces this way. And I, I kind of like though that she, while she was very clear throughout her life that her art was her passion, she almost tries to downplay her own skill by going, oh, some of them just wanted to work with me because I was pretty. Just kind of a weird, um. Yeah. Like well, her- <laughs> boast slash humbleness at the same time. I'm not, I'm really not sure what it is exactly about her portraits that makes me feel like she's going, yes, I am quite pretty. <laughs> she was quite pretty. Uh, she also, though, had this very funny way of diverting the attentions of young men who had hired her 
in her opinion, to paint their portraits just so they could be with her. Uh, and so she would pose them in such a way that they would always have to be looking away from her. And whenever she would catch them trying to move their their eyes and gaze at her while she painted, she would then say, I'm doing the eyes now so that they would have to return to the original position and couldn't look at her. Uh, and she always had her mother present when she was painting clients. And this amused her mother as well. She was made a member of the Painters Guild of the Académie de Saint-Luc when she was just 19, which significantly expanded her professional network and brought in new clients. Uh, that same year, 1774, Elizabeth met Jean-Baptiste Pierre Leblanc, who was an art dealer as well as an artist, and they were neighbors. And Elizabeth was eager to visit his home to see his vast collections of art. And while Elizabeth Vigée was not thinking about marriage, she was making her own money at this point. She really didn't see a need to worry about getting married and finding a husband to support her. Uh, her mother really encouraged her toward Lebrun romantically, hoping to ensure a secure future for her daughter. They got married two years later. Initially, they didn't announce their marriage because Monsieur Lebrun was skipping out on an engagement to the daughter of a Dutch client. During the time their marriage was secret, Elizabeth received numerous warnings from friends and clients that this man would not make a good husband. These bits of advice dried up once the couple went public. Four years into their marriage, they had a daughter, Jean-Julie Louise, and Elizabeth adored her baby girl. Yeah, can you imagine being married to someone on the down low and having people come and go, hey, look, I know you've been kind of serious with this guy. You should not marry him. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. (laughs) Uh, he was not a great husband. Um, aside from being a cheater and a frequent patron of prostitutes, he, like Elizabeth's stepfather, took all of her earnings from her art. And then he gambled all of that away. But Elizabeth generally described him fairly kindly in her writing, despite his faults. She wrote, quote, his character exhibited a mixture of gentleness and liveliness. He was extremely obliging to everybody and, in a word, quite an agreeable person. But his furious passion for gambling was at the bottom of the ruin of his fortune and my own, of which he had the entire disposal. But while Jean-Baptiste was not an ideal as a spouse, uh, his art collection was another matter. She studied the many paintings and prints that he amassed uh, with great fervor. She really loved it. And in 1782, the couple traveled to Le Pays-Bas, the Low Countries. So a quick geography aside, just in case you do not know uh, that designation, the Low Countries is the name given to the coastal region of northwestern Europe that includes Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Belgium. While traveling in the Low Countries, Elizabeth studied Netherlandish art. The glazework and color palette of Rubens was especially impactful, and it shaped the young woman's art going forward from that point. And we're about to get to the moment in her life that really launched Vigée Lebrun's career into the stratosphere. But before we do that, we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. 
<laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. When she was only 23, Vigée Lebrun was commissioned for an incredibly prestigious task. She was to paint the Queen of France, Marie Antoinette. She described the queen at the time as incredibly lovely. Quote, Marie Antoinette was tall and admirably built, being somewhat stout, but not excessively so. Her arms were superb, her hands small and perfectly formed, and her feet charming. She had the best walk of any woman in France, carrying her head erect with a dignity that stamped her queen in the midst of her whole court. Her majestic mien, however, not the least diminishing the sweetness and amiability of her face. To anyone who has not seen the queen, it is difficult to get an idea of all the graces and all the nobility combined in her person. And while Vigée Lebrun was initially afraid of the queen, as I can't imagine anyone wouldn't be kind of nervous uh, doing a portrait for a, a royalty, <laughs> Marie Antoinette was apparently very gracious with the painter, and the two really became quite friendly. Uh, eventually, the pair would sing together while the painter worked. Uh, once she had heard that Elizabeth was a, had a fairly good singing voice, they liked to sing together while she sat for portraits, which I find so charming. Uh, and Elizabeth's time in Versailles working on that first portrait of Louis XVI's wife really led to great success for the young artist. She became a court artist and was well paid for the position. She was the first woman to ever become an artist to the king. Uh, so it was quite significant. And over the course of the 10 years from 1779 to 1789, Vigée Le painted 30 portraits of Marie Antoinette. Uh, you've probably seen many of them. I would say one of the most famous ones that immediately comes to mind when I imagine portraits of Marie Antoinette is one of hers. Yeah, I mean, several. If you, like, go through your head and go, oh, there's that other portrait of, oh, yeah, and there's a, there probably most of them are the ones that Vigée Lebrun painted. They're beautiful. Louis XVI was also a fan of all these portraits, and he once told the painter, quote, I know nothing about painting, but you make me like it. I think that's so sweet. <laughs> I mean, he was a mess in many ways, but I find that quote terribly charming. 
Becoming one of the queen's favorites definitely had some benefits. In 1783, it was Marie Antoinette's influence that finally got the Académie Royale de Peinture et de Sculpture to accept Vigée Lebrun as a member. This professional artist organization of incredible prestige rarely accepted women, and Vigée Lebrun had been trying for years to get in, but her husband's work as an art dealer had been a little bit of a roadblock. It was kind of a sticking point that maybe this was more of a business thing than an art thing. Uh, and she was actually only one of four women in the organization when she was admitted, and she was, and the fact that she was there was, uh, it came with a little bit of a level of resentment on the part of the organization. Basically, they did not appreciate that they had been pressured by the monarchy to accept Vigée Lebrun. But if you know anything about Marie Antoinette, you know that anyone and everyone associated with her eventually became mired in rumors and accusations as the queen's tendency to attract scandal really radiated to all of her friends. There was gossip that Vigée Lebrun was not actually an artist, but instead that her work was done by a ghost painter and that she had used sexual prowess to raise her position in court. Throughout all of this gossip, though, Vigée Lebrun painted. She created portraits of many of the more famous figures of the Louis XVI court, including Madame du Barry and the Duchess de Polignac. She had as many as three sittings per day on her schedule, and she worked furiously to keep up with the demand for her work. She really had an incredible work ethic. She worked so hard that she actually became ill for a time. Her digestion suffered. It became quite poor. She was unable to eat, and she lost a great deal of weight. And the remedy, according to her doctor, was to go to bed immediately after eating dinner. And that sounds counter to a lot of modern advice. Most people will say, don't go lie down with a heavy meal on your stomach. But the painter really credited this habit with saving her life. as She, she really did regain strength and put some weight back on following uh, these doctor's orders. Vigée Lebrun was in many ways the toast of the town at this phase of her career. People came to visit her at her at her home studio often, although she believes some of them were also there to see her husband's art collection. And she often hosted readings by poets and impromptu opera performances. Despite being a favorite of the queen and part of a very vibrant French social scene, Vigée Lebrun was not a slave to fashion. She didn't really like the fashion of the day. She found it fussy and sort of ridiculous in many ways. And she often tried to persuade her subjects to abandon their trendy clothing for simpler and more classical drapings when she was painting them. If you look at a lot of these portraits that she did, uh, she does have them kind of draped in just very simple robes, shawls, etc. She had to have uh, dresses specially made to go to Versailles for her sittings with Marie Antoinette. She didn't just have fancy clothes on hand. Uh, and she always did her own hair, which I thought was sort of charming as well. She also hated the powdered look of hair. She constantly begged her clients to please sit with their natural hair color and not powder their hair. As the French Revolution heated up and sentiment against the royal court really started to grow, Vigée Lebrun eventually fled France for her own safety. safety. Things had got to the point where her home was targeted People would shake their fists at her when she left the house, and someone had thrown sulfur into the cellar, which sounds awful. Yeah, I also wonder, and I I don't know, uh, this is purely speculation, but I wonder if that could potentially have damaged any paintings. Like just the, you know, if you think of an oil painting, they take a long time to cure, and I imagine having weird things in the air might do some damage to some of it, but I don't know. That's, again, just speculation on my part. A question mark. If anybody knows, write us and tell us. 
for a long while, though, Vijay Lebrun resisted her urge to leave France because she didn't want to break the large number of commissions that she had in her queue. She really worked constantly. She always had people on basically a wait list just waiting to be the uh, to have an availability. But in the fall of 1789, she was so shaken by some of the violent ends that uh, many of her society acquaintances were meeting that she had, in fact, decided to leave. And so she packed her carriage and prepared her exit. But the night before she was planning to go, several armed men broke into her room and they appeared to be inebriated and they harassed her for a while, but they did eventually leave. Later, two of them came back and told her that they were neighbors and meant her no harm, but that she simply had to go. They further advised her not to take her own carriage, but instead to take a stagecoach. She took their advice and a week later left on the first stagecoach she had been able to book. And so she was moving and with her young daughter to Italy. And when she did so, her French citizenship was revoked. She estimated that in her career up to that point, she had earned more than a million francs. But thanks to her husband's gambling, she had almost nothing to her name when she fled. Returning to France was impossible for 12 years. And during that time, she traveled to Austria, Czechoslovakia, Germany, and eventually Russia, which she really loved. And she stayed there for six years. Coming up, we'll get into a bit of detail about some unfortunate events in St. Petersburg, Russia, as well as the painter's later life. But first, we're going to pause for a brief word from a sponsor. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do, too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issues shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. So during all of these travels, uh, when she was outside of France, Vigée Lebrun was painting portraits to earn a living to support herself and her daughter. 
But this was definitely not a case of an artist scraping by and doing work for pittances. Elizabeth's reputation as an artist was really impressive. She was basically welcomed into all of the houses of rulers and dignitaries throughout any of the areas she traveled in. They were all more than happy to pay the gifted painter to create beautiful portraits of themselves and their families. She lived quite well while she was in exile. During her time away from France, Elizabeth and her husband severed their ties. In 1793, Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun divorced his wife under duress from revolutionary authorities who labeled Elizabeth as a deserter for having fled the country. And in addition to the portraits, which were her bread and butter, uh, I just wanted to mention that while she was traveling, she did hundreds, literally hundreds of landscaped pieces uh, during her travels. Some were in oils and some were in pastels. And those are things that didn't always get a lot of attention from uh, the art world, but they're getting a little bit more uh, interest now. While she loved St. Petersburg particularly, her relationship with her daughter suffered there. Jean-Julie Louise had grown into a lovely girl and, like her mother before her, received a great deal of attention from potential suitors. When Julie, as she was called, was 17, she fell in love with a man about a dozen years older. His name was Negri, and he was secretary to a count. And when Vigée Lebrun got wind of this budding romance, she was, first of all, heartbroken at the thought of losing her daughter. We spoke uh, when we mentioned her baby girl being born that she was really devoted to her, and that stayed the case throughout her life. She was so devoted to her child. Uh but then she started to ask around to get information and opinions on Negri, but the things that she was hearing were something of a mixed bag. Some people really loved him, and others had really little good to say about him. But more concerning to the mother was really the fact, it almost is a repeat of how she got uh, into her marriage with Lebrun, uh, is that she was concerned that Negri was not really well positioned. He had an okay job, but he really didn't have like a great job. And Elizabeth advised her daughter against marriage, and it eventually drove a huge wedge between mother and daughter. The couple married, and while Vigée Lebrun fulfilled the duties of the bride's family, including giving the couple a sum of money from her recent commissions, she was not a happy mother of the bride. When mother visited her newlywed daughter in the weeks following the wedding, it appeared that Julie wasn't especially happy either, although she was resigned to stay. And just as Vigée Lebrun was coping with the heartbreak of seeing her only child in what appeared to be an unhappy marriage, uh, the artist's mother died. And the combined stresses and unhappiness of these events really took their toll. And in an effort to escape via change of scenery, Vigée Lebrun decided to head to Moscow. In 1801, as Russia was itself in the midst of political turmoil related to the French Revolution and its shifting loyalties, Vigée Lebrun was once again ill. She continued to suffer both physically and mentally and then decided to leave Russia. And Vigée Lebrun returned to Paris after making several visits throughout cities in Europe. She kind of took a long, circuitous route home. And she was greeted by happy friends and family who were overjoyed to see her once again once she did reach Paris. But she really didn't feel at home in the changed city. In general, she wrote, Paris has a less lively appearance to me. And seeing the words liberty, fraternity, or death that were scrawled on the walls around the city, uh, which had been part of the revolution, really saddened her. And it reminded her of what she, what her life had once been and what she had lost. Because of her melancholy at being in the city she had once loved so much, Vigée Lebrun moved to London in 1802. 
she wasn't entirely enamored with England either. She found it rather drab and uninspiring, and the damp, the damp climate meant that her paintings took a really long time to dry. She didn't find the art community entirely welcoming either, and some of them even printed criticisms of the French School of Art and all who came from it. Yeah, she got kind of embroiled in a back and forth with another artist who printed some nasty things really quite clearly aimed at her. Uh, and she wrote him a letter in defense of of the French artists that circulated among society, like everyone knew about this letter. So it's eh, not the best uh, welcome in terms of that, although she did have friends there. But shortly after Vigée Lebrun arrived in London, the treat of the Treaty of Amiens was signed, and as part of that treaty, any French person in England who had been there less than a year was to be sent out of the country. But because Elizabeth did move in illustrious circles, the Prince of Wales was able to secure a special permission from King George III that enabled her to stay. She remained in England for almost three years, visiting all of the royal residences and castles you could possibly imagine. Uh, her memoir just sort of lists them one after the other. It's like, and then I went to this place, and here's what I thought of the gardens and their art collection. And it's like a long travel log of all the places she visited. But she did move back to Paris in 1805. She had really just gotten settled into a life she quite enjoyed in England, with a well-cultivated social circle and plenty of enjoyable invitations just about anywhere she might want to go. But she had gotten word that her daughter had returned to Paris, and she hurried to see her. Julie and her husband had traveled to France on business, but when that business concluded, Negri returned to St. Petersburg. Julie did not. And in her memoirs, Elizabeth is not the least bit subtle about happy how happy the couple's split made her. From 1805 on, Elizabeth lived in France for the rest of her life. She spent the time between Paris and the country. Yeah, she really loved being in the country. It was very inspiring to her. Um, but then over the course of seven years, there was a great deal of heartbreak in Vigée Lebrun's life. First, in 1813, her former husband, Jean-Baptiste, died. And while they had been divorced for some time, the death really did affect her deeply, and she grieved for him. Six years later, in 1819, Jean-Jouis-Louise became ill and her health rapidly deteriorated. When she died, Elizabeth was devastated. But just one year later, Elizabeth's brother, Etienne, also died. To cope with her grief, Vigée Lebrun traveled to Bordeaux, a town she wasn't really familiar with. The complete shift of mindset from exclusively mourning to also discovering a new place seems to have really helped the painter get through this difficult time. And she reported that her health improved on the journey. Also that her spirit was, quote, less dark when she returned to Paris. And from that point on, her brother's uh, two daughters, her nieces, Madame de Riviere and Eugenie Lebrun, became her dearest relatives and closest friends. In 1835, urged on by her friend Princess Helene Dolgoruki of Russia, Vigée Lebrun published the first volume of her three-volume memoir titled Souvenir de ma vie. The next two volumes were published during the following two years. And in the opening of that memoir, when describing her natural proclivity toward art, uh, Vigée Lebrun wrote a passage that really beautifully encapsulated her whole life. She wrote, quote, I mentioned these facts to show what an inborn passion for the art I possessed. Nor has that passion ever diminished. It seems to me that it has even gone on growing with time. For today, I feel under the spell of it as much as ever and shall, I hope, until the hour of death. Vigée Lebrun died in Paris on March 30th, 1842, at the age of 86. 
And she did really paint right up until uh, the end of her life. Uh, in October of last year, so 2015, the first monographic exhibition of Vigée Lebrun's work to be mounted in her home country went on display at the Grand Palais in Paris, France. That was also somewhere that she had visited as a child. And that exhibit is now on tour. So if you are lucky, you might be in a place where you can see it. It is currently at the Met in New York until mid-May. I actually posted uh, one of the portraits that she did of Marie Antoinette and her children. It's the one people sometimes wonder about the empty uh, baby bassinet, and it's because they had lost their fourth child. Uh, so that is depicted empty because the child is gone. Uh, that will be, as I said, in New York until May, and then it moves to the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa in June. Uh, and you can also check out, I think we have a, we'll have a link to, um, the, either the Mets page or another one that will show the, uh, the, the travel schedule. I'm not sure where it goes from there, but it's spectacular. I really, she's one of those artists that, uh, I have often admired throughout the years, even before I realized like all of these portraits that I was in love with were all her. Yeah, it was not a name that I immediately recognized just because on paper to me, it looks like French soup. Uh, <laughs> so when I uh, this morning before we recorded, I was tracking down all the artwork that we would use when we put this on our website and I had just plunked her name into one of the stock image sources that we use. And the only thing that it returned was this portrait of Marie Antoinette. And I had this moment where I was like, but that's Marie Antoinette. And then, (laughs) oh, right. Now I completely recognize like all this woman's portraits because I've seen a lot of them and they they have a very, uh, there's a look about them that you can recognize after you look at them for a while. Yeah, like I mentioned at the top, there is a lightness to them. The way she used light in her portraits was very lovely. And she really none of her portraits ever have a heavy feel. Like even when she's using darker tones, they all just have sort of a, a feeling of brightness and uh, just lightness, even the sad ones. Incidentally, that, that portrait that I had just mentioned of Marie Antoinette with her children, uh, which was kind of commissioned by the king in an effort to portray uh, his wife, you know, as a loving mother in the hopes of kind of fixing a little bit of her image at the time is one that Vigée Lebrun mentions in her memoirs that the revolution or uh, Marie Antoinette's grief over the loss of that baby really saved that piece of art from the revolution because it was in the hall. And Marie Antoinette would have to walk by it uh, on her way, I believe, to her dressing room. And she finally was like, I can't look at this painting anymore. It makes me sad every time I see it. And it's too upsetting. And so they took it down. And that's why it was not one of the things that was damaged when... Uh, the palace was ransacked. So sort of grief sort of saved that portrait for us. So we're lucky in that regard. But I, yeah, I just, her uh, memoirs, I highly recommend. They're a pretty fun read. They're very lighthearted. It's kind of interesting because she had this marriage that wasn't great. You know, she had had a stepfather she was not very fond of. Even when she's talking about these deaths that really impacted her, she kind of whips by them pretty quickly. She keeps it very light. And a lot of her memoirs are about the fabulous parties she went to and the fabulous people she met and sort of she was really into the social scene. And to me, it's an interesting juxtaposition because someone that writes so much like that, you wouldn't expect to be a completely devoted workhorse. But she was basically like 
working her tail off all day long to do all of these sittings and paint portraits and keep up with her client list. And then at night, she was going to fabulous parties. And it was just like this terrific life that she had put together for herself that she really seemed to love. Like she was like, I designed this life. I'm living it and I love it. And I, it's very admirable. And she kind of doesn't even um tend to focus very much on the fact that she was kind of breaking a lot of glass ceilings for women artists at the time. She's just like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I was cute. So some people wanted me to paint their picture and I was doing some really neat things. Yay. It's, <laughs> it's very unassuming, even when she's talking about how beautiful she was as a young woman. And I just I clearly love her. Uh, you want to hear some listener mail and stop hearing me fangirl about Vijay Lebrun? <laughs> <laughs> the fangirling's fine too. I would love some listener mail though. Uh, I have two postcards. I'm trying to keep up with postcards, but we get so many. So I apologize. I know we always do this, but I apologize for everybody who I don't read because we get lots of good ones. This first one is, I believe, from Kelsey. It is once again one of those things that is victimized by the Postal Service markings. Uh, and it is... Uh, a postcard of Sally Lund's house in Bath, and she will tell us about it in her thing. She says, hello from an American reader in England. I was lucky enough to visit beautiful historic Bath recently, and your podcast made the long bus ride a delight. I had dinner and, of course, tea at Sally Lund's, the oldest house in Bath, and their basement is a cool museum where you can see the layers of floors over the centuries and the original oven Sally used. Thank you so much. This is a really lovely postcard. I'm kind of entranced by all of the beautiful, beautiful um, flowers outside of that house, as well as the pictures of what look to be beautiful, beautiful pieces of bread. Uh, the other one that we got is from our listeners, Sasha and Richard, and they used a really cool service called TouchNote. Or they're not an advertiser for us, but man, did this make a beautiful postcard. Uh, and she says, my boyfriend and I recently listened to your podcast, The Great Vowel Shift, and we're overjoyed that you got the information about the Celts right. We both studied abroad in Cork, Ireland, two springs ago, and our archaeology teacher was very passionate about all the misconceptions. The following spring in a history class at my university, I gave a presentation because everything about them in our textbook was wrong. I'll try to find the PowerPoint I made and email it to you. Keep up the good work, Sasha and Richard. They are from California, but they currently live in Oxford, UK. And she sent us a cool um, postcard that was created uh, in their travels in Ireland of a fairy glade. And it's just lovely. And like I said, this is a cool service. I did not know about TouchNote. Now I'm going to look into it because it made a beautiful custom printed postcard where her writing is also printed out. So it's super easy to read. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's like uh, a little laminate postcard. I love it. I I, I only heard this uh, postcard for the first time just now because as most of us know, I don't work in the same office as you anymore. Um, but I was making the most delighted face. I was not prepared for how many people would be so delighted and thankful that I said that the Celts were not one monolithic culture that somehow was like the thing in, in Britain before, uh, before the Norman invasion, like multiple people have been like, that's so amazing that you said that. Yeah. Unfortunately it does. It gets shorthanded in a way that really, uh, is not accurate. (laughs) Right. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so. Our email address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can meet up with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history on pinterest.com slash history at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. If you want to guess what our Instagram handle is, it's history. <laughs> 
if you want to research a little bit uh, related to what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Do a search for Marie Antoinette, and you'll get a few different articles that touch on her. But one of them, one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, just as a case in point, the lead image art for pretty much any article we have is a portrait. They're all various different portraits by Vijay Lebon. So uh, it's it's germane to what we talked about, as well as having some interesting Marie Antoinette topics. If you would like to visit us, you can do that at mistinhistory.com. And we have show notes for all of our episodes since Tracy and I have been on the podcast. We also have every episode of the podcast ever, going back to the original host when it was just a very short show. And you can come and visit us. Come to mistinhistory.com and come to howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.